This past week, I finished reading a really, really fine biography by Eric Metaxas, a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany, leading up to and including World War II. And his life was really quite an amazing life. He ended up being executed by the Nazis just days, really, before the end of the war. And he, uh, the, the biography, I would commend it to you, he does a really, really fine job of uh, just examining the, uh, what was involved in the issues that Bonhoeffer faced because uh, Bonhoeffer was involved in numerous attempts to assassinate Adolf Hitler and bring an end to the war. And the morality of all of that is really quite something to consider. And, and he was a very, very serious thinker and did not enter lightly. Uh, into that uh, terrible, terrible time. Desperate times call for desperate actions. And there, uh, there have been many desperate attempts, de- desperate uh, actions that occurred in uh, World War II. It was a horrible time. But one that uh, stands out for me was Operation Mincemeat. Operation Mincemeat was a 1943 operation or scheme by British intelligence designed to deceive the Germans into thinking that the planned invasion of Sicily would actually occur somewhere else. And so in order to pull off this deception, British intelligence acquired and dressed up a human cadaver giving it a false, or him, a false identity as Major William Martin of the Royal Marines. And then this uh, cadaver dressed in, uh, in British uh, military garb was uh, let off from a submarine into the sea off the coast of Spain. Attached to the, to the dead body was a briefcase containing fake letters, fake correspondence, stating that the Allied invasion would not be against Uh, or would be to uh, in Sardinia and Greece rather than Sicily, which was the actual place the invasion was to occur. And when the body was found uh, with all of the false pocket litter that they they put there, I believe with movie stubs and all kinds of things to to really make this thing come alive, the, the Spanish intelligence service who first discovered the body passed it on to the German intelligence service who in turn passed along the information to the German high command. And the ruse was so successful, and this is really kind of amazing, that the Germans believed that Sardinia and Greece was still the intended objective of the Allied invasion weeks after the landings at Sicily had occurred. The uh, whole story has actually been uh, made into a movie, a 1956 film, and um, you could check it out if you're so inspired. Deception... Deception, in order to be effective, must correspond to and confirm an already existing thought pattern. It must correspond to and confirm an already existing thought pattern. That is, it it must encourage you in what you already believe. That's how one becomes deceived. In the case of the Nazis, Hitler was already predisposed to believe that the Allies were planning to invade Greece rather than Sicily, and so all of this information merely confirmed what he already thought. 
The New Testament provides many, many warnings to the Christian about being deceived or about deception. For example, in 1 Corinthians, in beginning in chapter 6 and beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He writes later in the same book, chapter 15 and verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. He writes in Galatians chapter 6, and verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. James writes in James chapter 1 and verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And the context in which he writes that is that addressing the issue of temptation to sin. And he says, God does not tempt anyone to evil. Do not be deceived. Later in the same book, same chapter, verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Do not be deceived. If you think you are religious and cannot control your tongue, your religion is worthless, he says. Many, many warnings. These are only a few. And I'd like to add another one this morning, if I may. I'd like to add one more. And the warning I'd like to add this morning for us is what I'm calling the dangerous deception of externalism. The dangerous deception of externalism. And you might ask the question, what is externalism? And that would be a good question. So let me provide you with a definition. Externalism is measuring our righteousness based upon conformity to human standards while ignoring the condition of the heart, the place where thoughts, feelings, and desires are formed and cultivated. I'll read it to you again. Externalism is measuring our righteousness based upon conformity to human standards while ignoring the condition of the heart, the place where thoughts, feelings, and desires are formed and cultivated. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15 for this morning's message, The Dangerous Deception of Externalism. We will be looking this morning at verses 1 through 20 of Matthew chapter 15. And as we do that, uh, this particular section of Scripture highlights three characteristics of externalism. We can find here three characteristics of externalism which exposes its deceptive danger to the follower of Jesus Christ. 
So that's where we're going this morning. Three characteristics of externalism. Number one, externalism places human tradition above God's word. Externalism places human tradition above God's word, beginning in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Stop there. We are thrust immediately into this context. Leading to it is the end of chapter 14 where we see that Jesus in the area of Gennesaret, which is just a few miles to the west of Capernaum, and this is, of course, following the healing of the, well, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water and the return to Capernaum and the, and the bread of life sermon and so forth. There he is in the area of Gennesaret, and the people are, are crowding him in order to be healed, and they are crowding him to such an extent that even if they can touch the, the hem of his garment, it says, they are healed. That kind of close contact with those who are sick and ritually defiled would be something the Pharisees would want no part of, no part of at all. But we see, Matthew tells us, Jesus right in the, in the midst of it, in the thick of it, with those who need him most. And then chapter 15. Some Pharisees approach Jesus, and, and they are approaching him about a certain problem that they observe. Now, we need to, to note here that it says they came to Jesus from Jerusalem, verse 1. That's important. The reason that's important is because the Pharisees and the scribes who come from Jerusalem are the, are the muckety-mucks, right? They are, they, are, they are not the local Pharisees. They are, they are the ones who have achieved the situation of status such that they uh, rule over the synagogues to, near to the royal capital, so these are the accomplished ones. These are, these are the best of the best, the, the brightest, as it were. And they are traveling north to Galilee. And that's unusual. That is unusual. It would be highly unusual for them to, to travel to Galilee on merely a pastoral call. They just wouldn't do that sort of thing. So they are not there to, to merely make a pastoral call among the people of Galilee. That's unusual. It would be even stranger still that, that if they were there, that they would just happen upon Jesus and decide to engage him in a discussion of ritual purity. So what do we deduce from this? Well, what we can deduce from this is that they are there on a mission. This is an official mission. This is a, this is a delegation from the, from the religious leadership of the capital of the nation. They are coming north to the backwater of Galilee, and they are coming there for an, for an important reason, and that is to investigate and, and to put an end to the ministry of this itinerant rabbi who is causing such a commotion among the people. It is not hard to believe at all that the local uh, religious leaders, the local Pharisees perhaps, had, had actually sent out a call for help. Bring in the big guns. We were not able to handle this man. 
Every time we get into a dispute or a discussion with him, he ends up embarrassing us and besting us, and we look foolish in front of the people, so come on down and help us put an end to this situation. And so they show up. They show up. And there is a confrontation, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now what kind of a confrontation is that? Well, actually, it's a significant confrontation. Let me observe a few things for you from this text. First, this is not a discussion about hygiene. Okay, this is not what your mother told you to wash your hands before you eat. That's not what it's about. So it's not about hygiene. It, it is about ritual purity. It is about ritual purity. That is, how does one approach God? Mark, in his parallel account in Mark chapter 7 and in verse Four, he fills out the details a little bit more and says it concerns not just washing hands, but also washing the outside of dishes and pots prior to using them. So it's a comprehensive discussion of ritual purity. Now with regard to the hands, uh, sort of the established procedure would be to pour water on your hands from the wrists and let it just sort of run down your hands and, and run off your fingers, you know, and and you would then have ritually cleansed your hands. And the idea is to remove defilement. Defilement that, that you have picked up as you have gone about life. Particularly as you have touched common things and common people. And so you needed to be purified, ritually purified. So it's a discussion not of hygiene, but of ritual purity. Secondly, the... Uh, the the Old Testament law talks about ritual purity, and it talks about washing the hands. But it concerns the priests of Israel, not the common people. Particularly, and you can check them out on your own, Exodus chapter 30, Leviticus chapter 15, Deuteronomy chapter 21, speak about the cleansing the priests had to go through, the elaborate washings and bathings that the priests would have to go through before they could perform their priestly duties. What the Pharisees have done is they have extrapolated these laws that concerning priestly purity, and they have taken them to themselves, and then they have applied them to everybody else. So they have taken a very specific set of regulations given in the Mosaic law by God through Moses to the Levitical priesthood, and they have now made it applicable to everybody. And how do you go about doing that? How do you take a minutia and, uh, and put it on everybody? Well, it's done through oral tradition. It is done through oral tradition. Tradition. The Pharisees believed and taught that God had not only given Moses the written law, but had also given him oral law that explained and interpreted the written law that you and I have as part of our Old Testament. This notion of, of oral law and oral tradition is then handed down from father to son generation upon generation, and, uh, and sort of added to along the way. And so it grows. It gets bigger and bigger. 
By around 200 B.C., the oral tradition was actually reduced to written form, and it's called the Mishnah. It's called the Mishnah. And then the, uh, the commentary, the rabbinic commentary on the Mishnah. So you've got you to understand this. You've got Moses' written law. Then you have an oral tradition of what the law means and how it applies and so forth, which is finally written down in the Mishnah. And then you have an extensive commentary on what the Mishnah means. So you have a commentary on a commentary on the Word of God. And it's known as the Babylonian Talmud. That is, the, that is the rabbinic commentary on the Mishnah. So you can see how layers begin to build up, encrustments begin to build up around the law of God. What happens is that, that by the time of, of what we're reading, the account here in the first century, there is a massive and, and complicated set of rules and regulations that the, that the Pharisees say govern the religious life of the nation. And in fact, it is so heavy that Jesus, or earlier in Matthew chapter 11, refers to it as a yoke, right? Matthew 11, beginning of verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, as opposed to the yoke the Pharisees had put upon the people to try to keep all of this massive set of laws, rules, regulations governing every aspect of life. Third, third observation. Verse 1, the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to Jesus but notice the question in verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They are concerned with the behavior of Jesus' disciples. They're concerned with the behavior of his disciples. And this is significant, and it's significant for this reason. It is certainly possible that an individual could inadvertently uh, violate one of the, these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules and regulations that the Pharisees had, had built up over the, decade, over the uh, centuries. It's certainly possible you could, you could inadvertently stumble into one. But when a whole group of disciples neglect them together en masse, what that means is that they have not accidentally stumbled. They have been instructed to avoid them or to violate them. And so it's a significant thing here. What it means is, is that the teacher of these disciples has taught them to willingly uh, disregard the tradition of the elders, and that puts him and them in a direct confrontation with the religious leadership of the nation. No longer is this a regional squabble. This is now a national fight. A national fight. So this is a, a heavy-duty thing here in verses 1 and 2. This group from Jerusalem is coming here to squash Jesus. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? I love it when he speaks truth to power. Right? He is not, he is not 
in any way humbled or, or cowered by this, uh, this important group of religious leadership. So, so rather than even respond to their concern, he doesn't even address it. Instead, he flips it and he, and he confronts them and says, your problem is you elevate tradition above Scripture, resulting in breaking the very Word of God. Now, how's that for argumentation, right? He doesn't need to defend myself. I'm going to put you on the defensive. It is their tradition that is the cause of their disobedience. You can see it right here in verse 3. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? That is, that your, your keeping your tradition causes you to violate the very word of God. And specifically, he's going to charge them here with violating the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment, verse 4. For Jesus said, this is his evidence of that they do it. He says, for, for God said, excuse me, verse 4, for God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. So Jesus immediately goes to the fifth commandment. Now, the fifth commandment has a, has a positive aspect and it has a negative aspect, and, and he brings them both together. The positive aspect of the fifth commandment is, is given to us in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, and it says that children are to honor their parents. They are to honor their parents. And what that means is uh, not just to, to hold their parents in high esteem, but it, but it includes, in the idea of honoring your parents, the responsibility to care for them financially if that is necessary. That is, that you are, to, you are to honor them in such a way that you will even provide for them should the need arise. Paul picks up on that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 4 and 8. He refers to the same thing. He who does not care for his own is worse than an unbeliever. They have denied the faith. So there is this positive aspect of, of honoring, right? Honor your father and your mother. And then there's a negative aspect that goes with the fifth commandment. And Jesus picks that up. And it actually comes out of Exodus chapter 21 and verse 17. Where it says there that he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Literally, the idea is that children are prohibited from slandering their parents. And if they slander their parents, they are to be executed. So that gives you an idea of how serious... The fifth commandment is, honor your parents, care for your parents, provide for your parents, even if it requires you to financially provide for your parents, and if you slander them, you are worthy of execution. Jesus says they are, they are guilty of violating this most serious aspect of the word of God. Verse 5, but you say, see the contrast? God says, verse 4, but you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would have helped you has been given to God. Now specifically, what Jesus is referring to here is what's called the practice of Corban. Actually, Mark uses that word, Mark chapter 7, verse 11, the word Corban. The word Corban appears 80 times in the Old Testament, and uh, primarily it occurs in Leviticus and Numbers, and is translated in your English Bible as offering. It is translated as offering. 
And what it meant was it was a free will offering. It was a free gift that the worshiper of God would, would bring to the tabernacle and then subsequent to the temple. And it was a way to demonstrate their, their love for God. They would bring this free will offering, this, this gift, this Corban. Eighty times it's spoken of in Leviticus and Numbers. But by the time it arrived at the New Testament, the, the whole practice has changed. It has become encrusted with, with this uh, oral tradition. And so what has happened by the time of the New Testament is that now when a person, all they have to do is promise that they're going to give all or part of their wealth to the temple upon their death, and then that wealth has now been set aside for God and it, and it can't be spent on anything but themselves. Let that sink in. All of my property I dedicate to God would be the vow. Throughout my lifetime, I can spend it and use it however I like. And when I die, it will go to God. But I cannot give it to anyone else. I cannot spend it on anything but me. Because it's, it belongs to God. It's been set aside for God. So what that practically means is, is that if you declare your, your wealth, Corbin, set aside for God, now you, you are rich and poor at the same time. Rich to yourself, poor to everyone else. So that means that all your, all your charitable obligations even to your parents, no longer are your responsibility because, gee, Dad, I'd love to help you, but, you know, the, you know, the pockets are empty. What a perverted way. What a perverted way. Their wealth has been, been pledged to God, they say, even though no money has changed hands. No money has changed hands. And the Pharisees taught that, that once the vow has been made, it cannot be taken back. It cannot be broken. So even if it's entered into rashly, even if it's entered into deceitfully, the result is, sorry mom, sorry dad, love to help you, I'm broke. It all belongs to God. As you drive off in your First century equivalent of a Mercedes, right? Jesus says that your tradition has trumped the scriptures. You have trumped the word of God. And this is the, this is the first danger of externalism. Because that's exactly what it does. It, it places human tradition above the word of God. Second characteristic of externalism is that it produces hypocrites. You can kind of see this one coming, right? Externalism produces hypocrites. Verse 7, Jesus says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is Far away from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. 
Jesus doesn't back down. He just continues the attack. He's on the offensive here. And so what he says is, is he, he penetrates right down to the, to the reason why they're violating God's law. He says your tradition causes you to violate the, the law of God, the word of God. But why do you do it? And the reason you do it is, is because you have a wicked and deceptive heart. A wicked and deceptive heart. You are a hypocrite. You are, you are claiming devotion to God. You are, you are claiming obedience to God when in fact all you are doing is merely masking your internal disobedience. You've got the, the perfect scheme. The perfect scheme. And that makes you just like your forefathers. Just like your forefathers. Verse 7, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. It's not that Isaiah was writing about this generation specifically. He was writing to an earlier generation of Israelites who were living in the same way, that is elevating their own word and their own traditions and their own ideas above the word of God. And he's saying you are just like them. You have fallen in with them. And therefore, Isaiah's prophecy is applicable to you too. It's applicable to you. Just like their worship stemmed from human tradition that set aside the authority of God's word and substituted their own in its place, exactly the same for you. You claim to be, to be developing godly doctrine, right? This whole notion about, about washing and purity, something that God specifically gave to the priesthood, and, you, and you've expanded it now not just to yourselves, but to, to everybody, and you've made it a requirement and a ritual for everybody, and so you, you saying that we're doing this because God is holy and we need to approach him in a holy way and, and all you've done is create a great big man-made mess of rules and stuff them on everybody else. There is a false piety to you. It, there's a false holiness to you, a, a false sincerity, a, a false idea that you are really worshiping God when in, when in reality you are just masking your own greed and, and you, are, you are teaching people to violate the fifth commandment, to, to leave their parents in the time of their greatest need. All under the notion that, hey, we're giving money to God. We're doing a good thing. Hypocrites. Verse 10. Jesus, after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. I mean, he has just let these, this religious uh, delegation from, from Jerusalem, he's let him have it with both barrels, right? Bang. Calls them hypocrites. By the way, you know what's the one thing hypocrites hate to be called? Yeah, hypocrites, exactly. <laughs> they don't like that. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. I mean, you just got to get a picture of this, right? I mean, the crowd's standing there. You got you to see the jaws, like, drop down, the mouth wide open. Do you, you hear what he just said? Right? I mean, these, these are the guys who lengthen the, their phylacteries, right? You know, they are so holy. They've got the long robes going with the, with the you know, the pom-poms on the bottom and And he points to the crowd and, and 
they, they've been observing this whole confrontation. And, and he turns to them now and he, and he warns them about this hypocrisy. That's what he's doing. He's, he's saying to them, you need to beware of your own religious leadership. They're hypocrites. Hear and understand, he says, verse 10. Don't let this one get by you. Recognize the truth. What truth? This truth, that, that purity is not a result of guarding what goes into the mouth, but guarding what comes out of the mouth. That's what you need to understand. That's what these people have completely missed. You need to be concerned not about what goes in, but what comes out. Mark tells us, by the way, Mark 7 and 17, that after Jesus says this, he walks away and goes into a house. He's all alone now with his disciples in the house. The disciples evidently were standing off to the side too and had kind of witnessed this whole thing. And so verse 12, then, you know, you can say then when he's in the house, the disciples came and said to him, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? <laughs> You gotta love that, huh? Uh, <clears throat> Master, yeah. Did you know you hurt their feelings? <laughs> you know, actually, no. It's a, it's a strong word. You scandalize. They've they've been uh, they've been scandalized. That is, they have been brought to the place of of uh, actually disruption of their faith. They're not just mildly annoyed. You you have absolutely antagonized them to the place uh, where they're going to be murderous. Jesus doesn't seem to care. He does not care, right? He's not concerned with offending these hypocrites, these false teachers at all. He is concerned about teaching the truth. So he answers them, verse 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Wow. Hmm. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. That is, um, that is strangely familiar terminology, or should be. It, it should bring back the parable of the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares, right? God plants the wheat. Satan plants the tares. These, these false teachers, these externalists, these, these hypocrites in verse 13, they are not planted by the Heavenly Father. And if you're not planted by the Heavenly Father, then you're planted by who? Right? Jesus says it in John 8 and verse 44, you are of your father the devil. There's only two possibilities for fatherhood. It's God or Satan. Every plant 
that hasn't been planted by God has been planted by Satan and will be uprooted. Do you see that? It will be torn up. According to the parable of the wheat and the tares, it will happen at the end of the age in the final judgment. These false teachers and their false teaching will be, will be uprooted. It will be pulled out. It will be torn up. It will be discarded and burnt at the judgment at the end of the age. But in the meantime, verse 14, give them a wide berth, right? Let them alone. Give them a wide berth. Why? Because not only are they themselves blind, but because they arrogantly think they can see and they, and they, and they act as if they are leading people to see, the reality of the matter is, is they're going to fall in a hole and they're going to take you into the hole with them. The blind guides the blind. They both fall into a pit. Both they and their followers will end up in ruination. Beloved, externalism produces hypocrites. It produces hypocrisy. It thrives in hypocrisy. And according to the scriptures, hypocrites will be judged at the end of the age. Externalism places human tradition above God's word. Externalism produces hypocrites. Third, externalism is impotent. The third characteristic is that externalism is impotent. Verse 15. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. God bless Peter. God bless Peter, right? Peter vocalizes what they're all thinking and then gets slapped for it. <laughs> Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. They are concerned. They're concerned about offending the Pharisees in verse 12, but they're also confused. They're confused about the, the meaning. What is Jesus teaching in, in verse 11? What is all of this about purity? It's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. They're concerned and they're confused. And so Peter says, will you explain this to us? Wow. I mean, the disciples have been with Jesus for some period of time now, right? It's, it's two years. They've been with Jesus. Some of them. 18 months for all of them in the, in the Galilean campaign here. Don't you think it's surprising they're so dense? Well, yes and no, right? So Jesus says to them, oh, you my poor lads. This is so hard to understand. No, what does he do? He, he rebukes them for their lack of comprehension, right? Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Don't you get it? I mean, earlier, 
right? Uh, earlier, he's, he's in, uh, in chapter 13 and in verse 51, after he's given them the, the parables of the kingdom, he says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, oh, yes, we got it. Got it. Now he says, are you so dense? Are you still lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that, that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But, that which, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. I mean, this should not be hard to understand. Right? Food goes in, and food comes out. Literally into the latrine. I mean, he just kind of gives it to him in earthy terms. But whatever comes out of the mouth, that originates on the inside. That's the place of impurity. That's where, where ethical impurity comes from. It's not this, you know, this washing stuff. Now, beloved, food is an intimate thing, don't you think? It is a very, very intimate thing. And, and, and you know, when you eat, it, it does enter deeply into the human body, right? I mean, it, nutritionally, it gets right down to the cellular level. Yet, it cannot change us. It, it, it cannot change our desires. It cannot change our ambitions. It cannot change our thoughts. It cannot change our deeds. Now, that's true of food. That, that, that goes inside at the, at the very in, most intimate of levels, if it cannot change you, then nothing externally can change you. Do you get that? This is sort of an argument from the greater to the lesser. If food will not defile you or make you pure before God, if food can't do that, then nothing else externally can. All the other externals, all the other rituals have no power to defile or purify the human soul. None. You probably heard this. The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. That's what Jesus is after. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. This is what's called a vice list. It's a vice list. And this is a common uh, rhetorical practice in the ancient world. This is not an exhaustive list. It's not designed to be an exhaustive list. This is designed to be a representative list. It is a representative list of, of various evils that are common to humanity. You'll see these in the New Testament, viceless. Specifically, Jesus starts here with thoughts, right? Out of the heart come evil thoughts. Now, that might be a, a specific issue he's addressing, or it's possible that he's, that he's further elaborating these evil thoughts with the, with the things that are listed next, murders, adulteries, fornications, so forth. So he may, he may be saying that, uh, that out of the heart come evil thoughts of murder, evil thoughts of adultery, evil thoughts of fornications, thefts, and so forth. He may well be saying that. 
or it's a separate category. It's out of the heart comes the evil thoughts, it's out of the heart comes the murders, it's out of the heart come adulteries and so forth. But it kind of gets you to the same place in either, in either way. Now the list is interesting, it's drawn out of the, uh, the, the second half of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the Decalogue. And he, he just sort of lists the commandments here with a couple of subsets. A couple of subsets. I'll show you what I mean. So he begins with the sixth commandment, murder. Out of the heart proceed murders. That is the sixth commandment. Thou shall not murder, right? What is it? It is the unlawful killing of another human being. Where does it begin? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, right? It begins with the anger that arises within our heart. Next, he talks about the seventh commandment, adulteries. Out of the heart come adultery. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. It is the idea of sexual intercourse with someone other than your spouse. Adultery. Then he gives us a subset, fornications. Sort of a subset of adultery. Okay? Pornia is the, is the word here. And, and pornia technically or specifically refers to sexual intercourse with a prostitute. However, it, is, it came to have a, a broader meaning than that and included all kinds of sexual sins. We're gathered up under this term pornia, translated here fornication. It's a subset of adultery. It's a violation of the seventh commandment. Stealing. Or thefts, right? Eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. What is stealing? It's, it's taking property that belongs to another person. Ninth commandment. False witness. The idea is perjury. Falsely accusing someone. The violation of the ninth commandment. And, and the, underneath that is the subset of slanders. Kind of falls in. What is slander? Slander is a violation of the ninth commandment. It's, it's speaking falsely about another person in order to destroy their reputation. Okay? False witness is in a legal context. Slander is outside of the legal context. But it's both a violation of the ninth commandment. So Jesus speaks to these commandments and he's saying, listen. It's, it's from the inside out that all of this awful stuff comes. It's all proceeding out of the inside. These are the things, verse 20... These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. The, the seedbed of all these kinds of evils lies internally. It is the heart. So it's not a matter what you eat. It's a matter of who you are. It's not that you need to wash your hands. You need to wash your heart. You need your heart to be washed. And the problem is that the, the heart lies outside of the realm of rules and regulations. If you understand this, hear and understand, verse 10, if you understand this, then you would understand that, that you need a third party here. You need someone who can, can wash the heart. Remember old Nicodemus in John 3? He's kind of having trouble putting that one together too, right? We need to be cleansed at the level of the heart. And of course, Jesus says, I am the one who does that. 
I am the one who cleanses the heart. Now, and we look back on this, and you know, you, from our historical perspective, we look back on this, and uh, I think it kind of seems, the whole thing seems a little foolish, don't you think? Don't you think the whole discussion seems kind of silly? Talking about, you know, washing my hands and washing the outside of the plate and all the rest of that. I mean, we look on that and we, and we say, you know, this is so obvious. This is so absolutely obvious. Of course what I eat doesn't, doesn't you know, defile me before God and, and refraining from eating certain things or washing my hands in a certain way or whatever doesn't come in me to God. We know that. These people were blind. But here's the kicker. You and I, we've got our blind spots too. You know what I'm saying? We see this one and it's obvious. Our problem is the ones that sneak up on us, the way we get deceived. We're not deceived about food. But we should never conclude that we are therefore not susceptible to being deceived or deception. And that there might not even be some level of deception going on in our hearts and minds even now. One writer said it this way, we are often far more concerned with looking good than with actually being good. Ooh, that hurts. Of measuring our spiritual health by what we do and don't do, rather than considering the weightier matter of God's word like love, compassion, and mercy. See, that's when you go from preaching to meddling, right? We started this morning, we said this, and we gave a definition. We said externalism is measuring our righteousness based upon conformity to human standards while ignoring the condition of the heart, the place where our thoughts, feelings, and desires are formed and cultivated. So what I want to do, in a few minutes left here, is I want to, I want to see if I can illustrate the danger zones. Not all of them, some of them. A representative list, like a vice list. Not, not exhaustive, not comprehensive, just perhaps merely representative. Places where externalism could develop. I'm not saying it has developed, I'm just saying it could develop. All right, we're going to go through it pretty quick. The first that occurred to me was the whole issue of Christian behavior and dress codes. Christian behavior and dress codes could be a place where externalism could develop. The idea is that, is that I, I need to dress a certain way, I need to behave a certain way uh, as a Christian that I might be right and righteous before God. While at the same time, there's all kinds of corrosion on the inside, right? Right? So this is just an area to think about. Think about your attitudes towards believers, other believers, how they dress, how they act. Do we make judgments about them and their acceptability to God on, the, on that basis? All right, here's another one for you. Potential. Potential place for externalism to, to begin to grow and flourish. How about our parenting decisions? This is this kind of idea that, uh, you know, we can lock out unrighteousness by providing the right environment. We need, to, we, need to, we need to get our children in the right environment. We need to keep them 
away from certain people because, why? Well, because they're wicked. And if we can keep them locked down in a righteous environment, then our children will turn out righteous. There's only one serious problem about that. If you lock them in solitary confinement, you have locked them with a heart out of which flows what? All manifestations of evil. So as a parent, what do we need to deal with? We need to deal with the heart of the child. Through the gospel, the heart of the child. Here's another one, possibly. How about morality? Morality. This is sort of the idea of, um, you know, I don't, I don't look at pornography. I avoid pornography, but I indulge in all kinds of, of lustful thoughts. Right? So I'm on, on the external, I'm good. But internally, there's all kinds of corruption going on. How about church attendance? There's another one. You know, uh, being in church all the time, it's, is it a good thing to be in church? Of course it's a good thing to be in church. The problem comes is when we, when we think that church attendance makes us acceptable before God. We end up hearing the word and not heeding the word. Or here's one more for you. How about financial decisions? Our financial decisions. How about, how about this idea of being debt-free so that we can live independent of God? So we have, the, we have this behavior, this righteous behavior is that we're going to be debt-free. Right? Christians are debt-free. Why? So they don't have to depend on God, right? They just got it all worked out financially. It's where the external looks good and the internal is corrupt. How about this one? How about the idea of mandatory Bible reading and prayer? Right? Hey, keeping these, uh, these behaviors, these righteous activities, I read my Bible and I, and I pray. So do the Pharisees. More than you do. Right? They, read it, they read their Bible more than you do and they prayed more than you pray. And yet, what does Jesus say to them? You're corrupt on the inside. Should I read my Bible? Should I pray? Answer? Of course. Motivated out of a love for God. Not out of an external duty. I'll give you one last one. How about ministry involvement? Doing things for God. I put in the parentheses there, even in, including evangelism. It's all, you know, this is, I've got to do these things. This is, what, this is what Christians do. This is, this, is what, this is what a holy person does. And yet on the inside, it's all done out of the wrong motives. Oh, you can probably add many, or maybe you'll delete some of these. We need the Spirit of God to really drive it home. Beloved, what is the, what is the remedy for externalism? How do, we, how do we avoid it? So easy to see in others, so hard to see in ourselves. How do we avoid it? The answer is the gospel. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the only answer to externalism. We need to think, we need to meditate deeply upon the reality of the gospel, and that is that it is the power of God unto salvation and sanctification to anyone who believes. That's where we go. That's where we go. As we respond to the gospel in, in faith, we, we become freed, freed from the deception 
of externalism. That's the only way out. That's the only way out. So, what do I need to do with this sermon? What do you need to do with this sermon? You need to think on the gospel. You need to invite the Spirit of God to, to examine your heart. And may, maybe there's some place right now where you have gotten caught up in wrong thinking. May God deliver you and I from such hypocrisy. Let's pray. Father, we do invite your Holy Spirit to search our hearts even now. So easy to see the blindness of the Pharisees when we read this account and, and it would be so easy to mock them, so easy to say, what's wrong with them? Why do they not see these things? And, and yet at the same time, our Father, we are susceptible. The human heart is, is an idle factory. It spews forth all kinds of evil continually. So may you enable us, O oh Lord, not to look at anyone else, not the Pharisees, not our neighbors, not our spouses, not our children, not our parents, but to examine our own heart, to allow your spirit to use your word to sift and to sort through our own lives. And Father, where we have been deceived with externalism, with somehow thinking that we can gain favor with you by what we do and don't do. Oh Lord, may you deliver us. May you help us to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ and to rely on Christ and Christ alone. And Lord, those in our midst who do not even know Jesus, they have yet to, to come to place saving faith in him. They, have, they are still trapped in trying to, to make their way before you by their own self-effort. Father, may you bring them to the end of themselves. May they reflect seriously upon this passage that, that the evil that they see in their own lives, where does it come from? It comes from the inside. And they need a new heart. In the words of the prophet Ezekiel, the heart of stone needs to be surgically removed and, and replaced with a heart of flesh. They need the new birth. And Father, we know that the new birth comes only by your grace. It is nothing that we can work up on our own. It is nothing we can even demand of you. We can merely beseech you. Be merciful to me, the sinner. O oh Lord, may you work in the hearts of those this morning who do not believe that they would call out to Christ. And may you have mercy on their souls. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.